Old Testament book of Joshua takes the narrative of the Pentateuch and displays Israel's successes in the land that God promised to Abraham. But the book also sets up their failures in the land, failures soon to be on full display in the book of Judges. Among the final words of this book of Joshua that we'll focus on today are these ominous clauses. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. A new commentary from Lexham Press by David Firth works through the biblical theological themes of Joshua and also provides more traditional exegetical comments. I've invited on the Bible Studying Magazine podcast today, Dr. David Firth, who is also the author of a book in the New Studies in Biblical Theology series entitled, Including the Stranger, Foreigners in the Former Prophets. I will ask Dr. Firth a question or two about this work as well after we get done talking about his new commentary in the Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary series. It's my privilege to speak with Dr. David Firth. Dr. Firth, could you just tell us, how do you serve the body of Christ? Well, first of all, thank you for the invitation. Um, I primarily uh, serve by my role as the Old Testament tutor and academic dean at Trinity College in Bristol, uh, but I'm also a Baptist minister and uh, from time to time take on uh, assistance or leadership roles in some of the churches which uh, are otherwise lacking leadership at the moment. So I picked up your new Lexham Press commentary in the Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary series on Joshua. And the reason I picked it up is not only that I'm standing in the offices of Lexham Press, as I generally do for the Bible Study Magazine podcast, but because the theme for this third season of the podcast is biblical theology. And I have found it very enlightening to ask practitioners of biblical theology, whether in books like your New Studies in Biblical Theology volume or in commentaries like this one, to simply define for us, what is biblical theology? Well, it won't surprise you that this is actually an area where people have lots and lots of debates. Um, but broadly speaking, I think bi biblical theology is the attempt to draw together the main teaching and themes that we find within the Bible. Uh, if I was to distinguish that from systematic theology, systematic theology wants to engage with uh, philosophy, with a range of other uh, tools to structure the way that we present Christian faith in an organized way, uh, whereas biblical theology is usually more content to say there are parts that I can't tell you exactly how it all structures together, but when I look across the Bible in various ways, I can see these themes uh, emerging, and biblical theology is the attempt to present that, to explore that, and I think also very importantly to say why those biblical theology themes matter for us in the way that we live as disciples today. I have found it particularly helpful when guests on the podcast, and you are the 11th out of 12 for this season, so this is the 11th definition of biblical theology that I've heard. I think it's especially helpful to distinguish it from systematic theology 
as you did. And I think that the definition of biblical theology, at least as you practice it, is going to come out more clearly as we continue to talk, because we're going to talk very practically about how about the outworkings of your view, which I share in your commentary. So let's dive right into talking about your commentary on Joshua. What do you mean by calling Joshua a bridging text? Yeah, Joshua is a book that sits between the end of the Pentateuch and the story of Israel's life in the land, which we find in Judges to uh, Kings. And for many years, people have come up with different theories about how Joshua relates to the rest of the uh, books of the Old Testament uh, around it. So is it the uh, book after the Pentateuch that forms a hexateuch? So rather than the Pentateuch, five books, a hexateuch of six books. And uh, for people who wanted to argue that there is a hexateuch, and, and here I'm thinking especially of Gehat Rad, but many others, um, they highlight the fact that there are key promises that God makes to Abraham in the Pentateuch, uh, land, descendants, relationship with God. And within the Pentateuch, descendants and relationship with God are certainly fulfilled Land is not, because Moses dies uh, looking over the promised land, Israel hasn't entered it. And so we need the book of Joshua to finish off the story of the Pentateuch, at least in terms of those promises that God makes to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. Yet, on the other hand, the book of Joshua clearly introduces a story that runs from uh, Joshua through to the end of the book of Kings. Uh, it introduces a new story of what's going to follow, of what Israel's life is going to be, how they gain the land, how they live in the land, how they move to exile, and we end with the hope of return to the land. So Joshua has to bridge so that it takes us back into the Pentateuch so that we understand that the story that we're going to read has to be read through the grid that the Pentateuch provides for us. Uh, especially within Joshua itself, the book of Deuteronomy in the first half of the book, and especially Numbers in the second half of the book, but not only those ones. And in doing that, um, it's, we, we start to read forward, but then we have to go back into the Pentateuch. Uh, but it also lays down themes and prepares us for events that are going to follow later on in uh, Judges, Samuel and uh, Kings so that we find out about certain peoples who continue to exist uh, at the time of Joshua, who are going to be important uh, later on. So we know that the Jebusites remained in Jerusalem um, at, until this day, uh, as it says at the end of Joshua chapter 15. And that's not going to be resolved until the time of David. And in fact, even in the time of David, we know that there are still Jebusites who continue to live within uh, Jerusalem. So. Uh, we are completing one story. So at the end, it's, it seems like the end. We are beginning another story and, and we are always moving back and forth between the two. Um, so I, I see Joshua as, as an intentional literary bridge. Um, and the important thing about being a bridge is that we do go both ways. A bridge is not necessarily a one-way uh, piece of traffic. Uh, rather, uh, the bridge allows us to journey both ways. Uh, back to the Pentateuch, but also forward into the history that's going to follow. 
it's a transition point in between two major sections of the story. That's really helpful. I, I, I really remember when Old Testament stories all existed in separate silos for me, and I didn't even know that the northern and southern kingdoms had split, because in order to understand that, I had to grasp the whole narrative of the Old Testament. So it was so helpful for me when biblical theology was introduced to me that I could see Joshua as a bridging text, that I could see it set into the story. Now, you use some technical terminology in your commentary as I was reading through it, some technical terminology that may not be familiar to our viewers, but I found your discussions of these words helpful. Could you explain to me what are focalization and anachrony, and how do they help us understand the book of Joshua? Okay. Uh, focalization and anachrony are concepts taken from uh, a modern literary discipline called narratology. Um, they were developed by and large by a French narratologist named Gérard Genet. Um, lots of other narratologists um, have done various things with them since then, um, but uh, Genet will do sufficiently for our purposes at the moment because he coined the terms. Uh, focalization uh, is uh, the distinction that exists between what the narrator chooses to tell us and what the characters within the narrative may know. So that's a general narratological uh, statement. Now, one of the things that I think is particularly distinctive about Joshua is that it uses um, what in Jeanette's terminology is called external focalization. And in external focalization, the narrator tells us a story but doesn't choose to give us the information that we think we need to interpret it. Um, so, for example, in the uh, Rahab story, uh, where the, the scouts are sent to uh, Jericho, I, I think of them as scouts rather than spies because they seem to be more like Boy Scouts half the time. Um, we don't know what they're thinking. We're never told why do they not do exactly what Joshua tells them to do, which is to spy out the land, especially Jericho, and just go straight to the city of Jericho, straight to the home of the harlot Rahab? Now, we can make all sorts of informed guesses as to why that might be, but the book of Joshua doesn't tell us. Likewise, when Rahab swears her faith in the Lord, is she telling us the truth or is she acting as uh, a, a clever person who is thinking, well, this is by far the more powerful force. If I get on side with them, I get away with it, even if nobody else does. When the scouts swear an oath with Rahab, have we now reached the point of breaking one of the commands of Deuteronomy 7, which is that you make no covenants with the people of the land? Have they fundamentally gone wrong at this point? Uh, and when they get back and tell Joshua, we're definitely getting the land, well, have they simply bought into what Rahab told them because it suited, or is this genuinely what's going to happen? Now, commentators and preachers also um, all want to get that sorted out for us there and then. But the interesting thing when I compared commentaries on uh, Joshua 2 is that some people said, okay, this is the point that shows it's absolutely okay for Canaanites to become part of Israel. That's one school of thought. Another school of thought says this is the point where everything goes wrong for Israel from this point on. And I can point to evangelical commentators who take both of those stands. And it seems to me that the reason why we were 
disagreeing so much was that we weren't paying attention to the way in which the story is being told. And one of the great gifts of understanding narratology is it asks us to say, well, how is the story told? Because how the story is told um, is vital to understanding what is being told. So we have this distinction. On the other hand, when I get to Joshua chapter 7, I reach a point of what's called zero focalization, where the narrator tells me everything. So in Joshua chapter 7, I as a reader know that Israel is about to go completely wrong when they try and capture AI because of Achan's sin. But Joshua doesn't know that. And when we get Joshua's prayer, he's complaining to God and saying, why did you bring us over only to fail? And as a reader, I know that everything that Joshua tells God is wrong in terms of his assessment of history, because I've been told that even before it happens. Um, but then I can watch as God gradually discloses what has happened to Joshua and, and accepts the, uh, the valid part of Joshua's prayer, which is to pray for God's glory and honour uh, and straightens things out for him. So attention to focalization, I think, helps us avoid getting into debates that are not being resolved for us along the way. Now, anachrony goes with this. Anachrony is where a narrator chooses to tell us information in an order which is different from the order in which it happens within the story. So again, that's a general narratological thing. So a story might have actually happened in the order A, B, C, D. The narrator tells us in the order A, D, B, C. And D is deliberately brought forward. Or B, C, D, A. And A is left to the end. Now, Joshua quite likes to leave the A to the end. So we only know that uh, Joshua has done everything correct, including the story with uh, Rahab, including the story with the Gibeonites in chapter 9, when in chapter 11, um, the book actually says, Joshua did everything that the Lord commanded through Moses. There was nothing that the Lord commanded through Moses that Joshua left undone. At that point, we know how we are to read those events that happened earlier on. Uh, likewise, in a couple of verses later, we're told that the Lord hardened the hearts of all the uh, indigenous peoples of the land to fight Israel, except for the uh, Hivites in Gibeon. Uh, and that's not told to us until the end of chapter 11. And only at that point do we understand that though the Gibeonites themselves were thinking in one terms of deception, God was doing something different amongst them. And uh, so attending to these features, I think, helps us see some of the distinctive ways in which uh, Joshua tells its story, because Joshua tells its story in ways which are different um, from what we find in some of the other books of the former prophets. What I found over the years is that the amassing of technical terminology like this, vocalization, anachrony, and in biblical studies, as in any field, you could just go on and on and on with the technical terms. Amassing those things just helps me put a label on and therefore truly see some things that I was sort of half seeing before, and of course, sometimes not seeing at all. But by having those labels, those things in the text, those features jump out at me and remain available to my cogitation, as it were. So you 
helped me as I was uh, reading through your commentary to think through, okay, where are other times in the Bible where this concept, this technical term of focalization and this other one of anachrony can help me understand because this is obviously something done purposefully by the, uh, by the author. Uh, I like to read quotes from uh, commentaries back to their authors and have them uh, reflect on them or offer some further thoughts. You wrote in your commentary that reflection on biblical theology can move in two basic directions, from the general to the particular, or from the particular to the general. That is, we can look at themes that are significant across the canon and then look for their presence in a particular text, that's general to particular, or we can identify the leading themes in a particular text and then explore the ways in which they are developed more broadly across the canon. That would be from particular to general. So which approach did you take in your evangelical biblical theology commentary on Joshua? I, I primarily wanted to take the uh, particular uh, to the general approach rather than taking the, the general approach. So the general approach might look and say, what does the Old Testament tell us about God as a whole uh, or something like that? And that has great value in helping us see how the canon fits together. But when we start with the particular, we often find important themes that might otherwise get missed because they are prominent in one or two books um, but are not as well uh, recognized in others. And, and if we focus too much on the general, we end up with a kind of flattening down of the biblical text rather than seeing that each text has important motifs, issues with which uh, it's going to wrestle. Uh, and I, I found it really, really interesting, for example, to take the uh, theme of rest uh, within the book of Joshua, which I think is a fascinating theme uh, across the book. Um, it, it's an important theme within the former prophets, but it's especially important in uh, Joshua. And yeah, I don't find detailed studies of a biblical theology of rest um, being treated in other Old Testament theologies and so on, because it's not one of those general themes that, that is picked up. Uh, but it's really important in Joshua. And, and for me, therefore, I felt that in a commentary that was on Joshua, uh, it was particularly important to take those themes that are within Joshua, but then to show that they're not unique to Joshua and to say, well, I know this theme is of particular importance in Joshua. It may not be so important across the rest of Scripture, but here's some of the ways in which that gets picked up. And of course, to take the, the theme of rest, uh, that then has some fa uh, fabulous echoes when we get into the New Testament, especially in the Epistle to the Hebrews. Um, but to understand, I think, what Hebrews is doing, I wanted to explore more fully what we can find within Joshua. In your um, commentary on Joshua in the EBTC series, I didn't actually notice this until too, uh, uh, until a little bit too late for me to ask other editors about it, but I believe your biblical theology section is placed before the commentary proper. And I think in the other EBTC volumes that I've checked, it's the latter. Was that a self-conscious decision? Did that have anything to do with the question that I just asked you? Um, it was a self-conscious decision. Um, I'm, I know there's been one or two changes in the editorship, uh, so it may change over time. But um, when I was approached to write this, we were given the option of either having the themes at the start or at the end. 
And uh, for me, I thought it was very important because I'd taken that particular approach of saying I wanted to go from the particular to the general to outline those themes for people so that as uh, readers, um, if they read the introduction first, and of course I know a lot of people don't read the introduction to the commentary first, a lot of people simply go, I want to know more about chapter 15 and verse 63, and they, they go looking that up. But for those who want to work through the book as, as a coherent text, especially uh, pastors who might want to preach through the book, I thought it was really important to put those themes up front um, because then as they're working through the commentary, they have the chance to see how they're being uh, developed uh, through the exegesis that I'm offering uh, in the rest of the text. So for me, that was a, an important choice. Uh, I was given that option and that was the way I wanted to um, present it. I've really enjoyed that structure of the Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary series. There are these fairly brief and clear sections uh, talking about the themes that the author has discerned in the book. And whether you put them first or last, you can always reference them. Even if you start in the middle of commentary, Joshua, you know, in chapter 15, verse 63, it, the commentary will refer to those themes. And therefore, I find even kind of within the book, you're going from general to particular and particular to general. I, I find that hermeneutical spiral to be a continually helpful metaphor for me, whether I'm in a book or in the canon as a whole. Now, in your biblical theology section, you said, let me quote you again, one of the key tasks of Joshua is to challenge a facile idea of the identity of God's people. How and where does the book of Joshua do this? Uh, well, the book of Joshua does it almost from the outset. When we read Joshua chapter 1, uh, it has, uh, Joshua chapter 1 is, or the first nine verses, is almost made up of a series of quotations from Deuteronomy about Israel moving in to, to take the land. So when it tells Joshua that he's to uh, meditate on the book of the Torah, almost everything that is said in what he's to do and to meditate is itself a quotation from Deuteronomy. Um, and it's, about going in, taking the land, and so on. But the one thing that Deuteronomy never does is give the inhabitants of the land a human face. Um, they are always the people who are over the river that you're going to encounter, and so on. And Joshua, though, immediately gives the inhabitants of the land a human face. We meet Rahab, and ultimately, certainly by the time we get to uh, chapter 11, but I think also chapter 6, really, by the time Jericho falls, we know that Rahab has a future within the life of Israel. And this has to challenge uh, certain ideas about uh, that to be Israel, Israelite, you have to have been born within the family. Uh, so do you have an ancestor who was an Israelite? If you do, then you are able to be Israel. If you don't, then you are not Israel. Um, and that all Canaanites are bad, therefore the only good Canaanite is a dead Canaanite, as I saw uh, as a popular summary of the book once. But what the book is actually doing is quite different. It's wanting to say these people may choose to put their faith in the Lord, and if these people choose to put their faith in the Lord, then they are actually one of us. They are more one of us than somebody who might have all the right birth history but doesn't actually live for the Lord. And, and that's why we have this very strong contrast 
between Rahab in chapter 2 and again in chapter 6 where Jericho is captured and Achan because Achan is an Israelite of the Israelites. He's got this long genealogy that can be traced all the way back. But he's not the one who actually wants to live for the Lord. He decides that those things which belong to God from Jericho, that he can take and keep that for himself. Um, so by the time we get to the end of chapter 12, even, we have within Israel, Rahab and her family. We have the Gibeonites, a whole city of, of Hivites. On the other hand, somebody who you might think ought to be Israel, but who isn't. Uh, and we then have these other references so that when we have the, uh, the celebration uh, at, of, of commitment and at the end of chapter 8, we have the foreigners and the native-born who participate in this ritual. When we are laying out the cities of refuge in Joshua uh, chapter 20 and 21, including the Levitical cities there, uh, again, we are thinking about, well, who was the foreigner who was going to become a part of Israel? And so Joshua is wanting to move away from an idea that you are Israel because you have the right percent to say that Israel is a people of faith. Israel is a people who are marked by their commitment to living out for the Lord the things that the Lord requires of his people. And those who do, even if they are Canaanites, if they are prepared to say, that's where I live, that's who I live for, then they too are Israel. And this is, I think, quite a radical uh, idea that the authors of Joshua, I think, are probably trying to take on um, some people who may have thought that uh, Israel is only people who have the right biology. And they're saying, no, it's about faith. There was one prominent Jewish thinker I know who picked up on this theme. It was the Apostle Paul, ultimately the leading Christian theologian, because in Romans 9 he says, not all Israel is of Israel. So it seems to me you are picking up in Joshua on the theme that Paul names there and that God names to Abraham back in Genesis 12 when he says, through you and your seed, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth which is a great segue into talking about your New Studies in Biblical Theology volume, including The Stranger, Foreigners in the Former Prophets. In it, you wrote, I have consciously stayed away from making pronouncements about the politics of any one place today, though I do believe that these texts, and you're talking about a number of Old Testament texts, are an undervalued resource for thinking theologically about this vitally important topic. It's my hope, still quoting you, that this study will contribute to discussions about national identity and how it is formed and how the people of God live within that while also being distinct. Now, I don't want to push you to make specifically political comments, but I would like to ask you to make general comments about how the portions of the Hebrew Bible that you covered in that NSBT volume can indeed help the people of God live inside nations as sojourners and strangers themselves. Um, yes, I, 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 I did want to be very careful in terms of politics because I realized uh, as I was writing that that in Britain we'd just been going through the Brexit uh, debates and there was all sorts of uh, demonization in many ways of foreigners, uh, which was slightly strange for me as a foreigner who lives in Britain. 
Um, although, as, as I mentioned earlier in the book, whenever people complained about foreigners to me and I said, well, I'm a foreigner, they all said, ah, yes, but you're not the sort of foreigner that I'm worried about, um, which then raised the curious question of, well, what sort of foreigner is it that you're worried about? Um, but I, I think the, the fascinating thing uh, about the uh, books of the former prophets, so Joshua, Judges, Samuel and Kings, is that although each of them does it in a slightly different way, um, what we find is them constantly exploring how God's people are made up of all sorts of uh, unexpected people, uh, people that we might not have otherwise valued. And it does that to go back to something I said about Rahab by giving them a human face, um, by showing that these people have value to the people of God. Uh, and one of the ones that I, I find quite fascinating really is the figure of Elijah. Um, who is said to be a, a Tishbite in most translations. Um, but a Tishbite is simply a word in Hebrew that means a settler. Um, so when it says he's from the Tish, a Tishbite from the Tishbe of Gilead, he is a settler from the settlers of Gilead. But for years, we've just decided that we'll make that a place name rather than uh, recognizing that it's a, a couple of common nouns and a participle. And translated, it makes perfectly good sense that somebody who's a settler, someone whose family background wasn't Israelite, who's moved in and become part of Israel, is going to be the sort of person that the Lord uses to absolutely transform that nation, to hold uh, those who are in power to account. And it's fascinating that uh, Elijah is able to be the one you know, who Ahab always regards as the troubler of Israel. Um, although Elijah is able to say, well, no, you're the troubler of Israel. You're the one who is like Achan, um, because the troubler is, of course, Achan. Uh, so we have this, uh, this ability amongst God's people to say, folk who others might not want to value, when we see them amongst the people of God, when we see them as people of faith, have a place and something to offer to us, um, which is far greater than the society around us so often wants to uh, to demonstrate. And I find this uh, living here in, in Bristol at the moment. My wife and I have been trying to help uh, a refugee family and uh, you know, supporting them. But we keep learning things from them because of the nature of their experience of, of moving into a new culture, not by choice in their case, but by necessity uh, and the contribution that they now bring to our own local church, I think enriches us uh, because they have things to share. They have insights from their culture, their background that can help us rethink the ways in which perhaps we become too entrenched uh, in our own patterns uh, as a result. So uh, for me, it's just been a fascinating study to see the, the extent to which foreigners are shown as important figures, how they are welcomed, how we challenge stereotypes. That's the important thing. We break down stereotypes. And once we can break down stereotypes and see these people as valued by God, they say important things to us. And then we say important things to the society around us as a result. It really is easy to develop the attitude that you see in the New Testament in trapping Peter even after he's had this vision of the sheet, he in Galatians 2 gets caught by Paul not wanting to eat 
with Gentiles. And you can see why. You've got your Old Testament statements about Israel needing to be distinct, but somehow there's also this tension God places in there of Rahab, uh, of other characters like Ruth, which is so precious, in which he's reminding the Israelites, not all Israel is of Israel. Bible Study Magazine and the Bible Study Magazine podcast often talk about Bible study method. We're serving a bunch of denominations, Christians coming from all sorts of perspectives. One thing we can just all unite around, though, at least the people who read the magazine, is a desire to understand scripture. So we do talk a lot about that kind of technical terminology, focalization and anachrony, and probably more often more accessible ones. But I wanted to zero in on a question about Bible study method based on another quote from your NSBT volume. You said, a common feature of Old Testament narrative texts is that although they describe what happened, they very seldom offer readers any evaluative comment. So although the narrators do have a view on what is approved or not, the poetics of narration within the Old Testament tends to discourage any direct comment so that readers may know the point of the story. I think in that section of your book, you were talking about the book of Judges. And I think you gave the example of Jephthah's sacrifice of his daughter. How then do we discern the point if it's not stated for us in the Old Testament text? Well, oddly enough, things like focalization and anachrony come back into play at this very point in terms of what's there. Um, but also the, uh, the narratives of the Old Testament uh, are able to are writing for an audience that can be assumed to know certain things, which very often, of course, modern Western readers don't know. Um, so the most obvious example would be um, geographical references. They, they say they went from here to here. Uh, most Western readers kind of, in my experience, blank out at that particular point. And it's only when I pull up a map and say, well, that involves going from this point to that point, that they start to know that. So part of it is they are writing for an audience that they can assume knows certain things uh, and that they don't need to comment on things which are known. Part of it, though, is also how you tell the story. And uh, if I can tell a completely different story for a moment, I think it might illustrate this. Uh, my wife and I spent a number of years working in Zimbabwe and South Africa. And one of the things I realized very quickly, especially working in black majority churches, is that as a preacher, they responded really well to um, stories, the stories in the Bible. Um, but one of my, stu one of my students, a Swana man, spoke to me. And this for him would have been very difficult because he, he, was, he was about to tell me I, I was doing something wrong. And in his culture, to come to the teacher who's a member of the faculty at the college uh, and say you're doing something wrong was very difficult, but he, he felt he needed to do that. And he said, David, I love the way you now want to preach the stories, but you, you get it wrong. And I said, well, why? Thinking to myself, you know, I'm, I'm the faculty person. I've studied this. I know these things. How can you tell me that? He said, you tell us what the story means. And I said, well, of, of course I tell you what the story means. That's the idea. He said, no. No, in our storytelling, if I have to tell you what the story means, I haven't told you the story. And 
for me, that was one of those sort of great aha moments. I mean, I did have to swallow my pride and, and everything um, and, and realise that I was still bringing a very Western way of thinking to the biblical text. Um, and, you know, when we tell stories, we often say, so the point of the story is, and if we think about the number of times we've heard a story told, and then so I, the point of this story I'm telling you is for such and such. But actually, when we tell stories just to each other, if I have to tell you why I have just told you a story, the story didn't work. The way I told the story, if I work within the conventions of how we tell stories, should make it clear to us. Now, if we look at the Jephthah story, I think this is one which illustrates this point really well. Uh, it is a difficult story. Let's be absolutely clear about that. Um, but within the story, the sacrifice of his daughter is just a horror, which is not quite the end of the story. It's a first step towards the end of the story. So part of it is we actually have to look and say, well, what are the boundaries of the story? And the boundaries of the story really goes back to Joshua, uh, Judges chapter 10, verse 6, not just chapter 11, where Jephthah becomes important, where we see Israel's sin, where we see its rebellion. And we begin to notice something when we pay attention, which is that Israel's trying to negotiate with God about what they can get away with. So they try and they try a sort of a half-hearted repentance. That doesn't work. We'll go for a bigger repentance. That seems to be slightly better um, and so on. And then they come up with the idea of, well, whoever can come and fight this battle against the Ammonites, they can be our head over Gilead. And then they find Jephthah, who's the boy from the wrong side of the blanket, who'd been kicked out. And they offer him a different role to being head at first. So they, they bring him in. They're trying to negotiate. And as then, it's all about negotiation. And only when he says, well, if I get to be your head, will I do this job? Not the sort of more commander role. Um, does he agree to come in? So it's again, it's negotiation. It's about manipulation. So Israel's trying to manipulate God. Jephthah and Israel are trying to manipulate each other. Uh, Jephthah then tries to manipulate the king of the Ammonites uh, as you go through the story. And it's quite clear that uh, Jephthah actually doesn't know his history very well. There are parts of what he says where he gets his facts wrong. Now, some scholars try and uh, sort that out and go, ah, well, it must have really happened that way. And I think, no, actually, the, the, the authors of Judges are just showing us something about Jephthah. He, he, he didn't go to Sabbath school as a kid. He doesn't know um, the stories. And if we haven't picked that up, in the end, when he says, well, Chemosh, your God has given your land. The Lord, our God, has given us our land. You, you, you need to say at this point, well, you've got it wrong. Chemosh hasn't done anything because he doesn't exist. Um, and yet here is this person who is the head who's trying to manipulate, who's trying to negotiate. So that when he then makes his vow, even though God's spirit has come upon him, what we are actually finding is somebody who is still attempting to manipulate, to control God. And what we are seeing as the story reaches its horrible ending is the outcome of an individual and a people who try to manipulate God to their own ends. Jephthah's daughter dies. But of course, the story doesn't actually end there. The story ends in chapter 12 in verses 1 to uh, 7, um, where another 42,000 people die because they can't say Shibboleth. 
um, they have a little problem with saying the SH sound and it comes out as Sybil F and people know that you're wrong. The way the story is told, at each key junction, it's shown us negotiation, manipulation, and a lack of genuine repentance. All of that produces the horror that is laid out before us. And the, uh, the storytellers, I think, don't need to stand up and say, so the point of the story is, repent properly, don't try and manipulate God and one another. Because if they have to tell you that, they haven't told you the story. Excellent. Now, on the one hand, you have to be right. I'm thinking back to the way my culture tells stories, a Western, and in this case, uh, American culture. And if you have to explain the story, it's kind of like explaining a joke. It's what you do to kids who just don't get it. On the other hand, I put a whole lot of money into commentaries that are helping me understand the stories of the Old Testament because there's so much cultural distance between me and them that I am frequently missing the point. And I'm a five-year-old or a two-year-old in that culture, and it's just you know going over my head. But I think then, would this be right? Would, would you know reflect on what I'm saying here, please? Would it be right to say my goal then with commentary literature helping me and other teachers is to become at least a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old in that culture, someone who's able to sort of step into the sandals of the original readers and pick up on the sorts of narrative elements that would have been obvious to them. Would you say it that way or yeah, a different a absolutely. way? Absolutely. And, and, I, and I hope that a good commentary on the narrative books of the Old Testament is going to do precisely that, that it's going to help us learn the, the modes of storytelling that are, are employed because they're not quite the same as the modes of storytelling that we use in Western culture. Um, so as well as the obvious gap of, of language, because most of my readers don't have Hebrew, um, nonetheless, I want to help them with things in there because there are things that are just part of the way that language operates. So I, I need to help with language. I need to help with history, geography, but also how the storytelling happens for me is really important. And yes, as a, as a commentator, I'm trying to help readers improve their, their literacy um, in, in understanding how these texts work. I'm working in discipleship with a, a man who was baptized fairly recently. And one of the things that we're working on right now is just trying to approach some of the more obscure stories of the Old Testament that he has questions about with the approach that he finds very helpful in, for example, the, the Bible Project videos by Tim Mackey, which is actually, they're actually done nearby here in Portland. Um, and he likes that. He sees that the whole Bible tells a story and that individual books of the Bible tell a story. Um, but we're working to try to fit some of the more difficult stories into those larger ones. Yeah, what you said I find very helpful. I want to read some more of your words back to you here from your NSBT volume and have you offer some more explanation. In your chapter four of your book, the, the, the chapter is entitled, The Books of Samuel, Foreigners as the Means of Assessing Israel. What did you mean by that phrase? And can you give an example or two? It doesn't have to be from Samuel. Maybe that would be most convenient, however. Uh, yes, but what I was meaning by that is um, that we are trying to show, to go back to our thing about Paul, that not all Israel Israelites as Israel. 
um, that if we want to understand what Israel is meant to be, sometimes we had to look beyond the boundaries of what you thought Israel might be. And so we are uh, having foreigners who, by their very faithfulness, uh, live what is expected of Israel in ways that actually exceeds the way the patterns of the people that we think should be exceptional. Um, so within Samuel, two very simple and very obvious examples, at least to me. Um, the first is Uriah the Hittite. Um, he's a member of uh, David's military forces. Um, his name Uriah would indicate that his family, at least, have come to faith in the Lord because it means uh, the Lord is my light, or at least that's one possible derivation of it. It's certainly the, the Yah part of it certainly refers to the Lord. Um, yet he's also known as the Hittite. He is from a people who are not Israel. Now, whether that's the Hittites from Anatolia or the Hittites who are the descendants of Heth, we can leave aside for uh, this conversation. Uh, but in 2 Samuel 11, of course, we see David at his absolute worst. He is grasping, he is conniving, he is adulterous, he is murderous. Um, he, he was basically like he was trying to say, how many of the Ten Commandments can I knock off in one chapter, which is you know, never something that you're meant to do. And Uriah is brought back, and he's always Uriah the Hittite. And when he comes back, he won't go and sleep with his wife because the ark is in the field. He, he needs to honor the holiness of Israel's army. The men are fighting in there. He can't, he won't go home. David gets him drunk, but Uriah falling down drunk is more upright than David stone cold sober, uh, which unfortunately is a line that's not mine, though I wish it was. It was Peter Ackroyd's. Um, and as we read the story, it is Uriah who continually turns and says, well, this is what Israel's faith is meant to look like. Whereas David, who is the great king, is failing utterly. Um, another very simple example, uh, during Absalom's uh, revolt, uh, David is fleeing from Jerusalem because Absalom and his forces are about to enter the city. And, and as, he, as he goes to the Mount of Olives, uh, as he's fleeing, um, the first person he meets is Itai the Gittite. So a Gittite is from Gath, he's a Philistine. Um, he's probably a Philistine mercenary who works for David. But where David is running and seeing that things are a complete disaster, it's Itai who talks to him and helps him to see what the Lord is doing. Uh, likewise, when he gets to the top of the hill, he encounters Hushai the Archite, and the Archites were uh, a, a Canaanite group who are mentioned only in uh, Joshua chapter 16 and verse 2. We wouldn't know about them otherwise. And he is David's friend, and he is the one who is going to show what it is to be faithful to David and to be faithful to the Lord and to trust God in a very difficult circumstance as he has to go into Jerusalem and, and be David's agent. So we, we have very often these pictures of David as the great king, and he is the, the king against which others are judged. But consistently through those chapters in Samuel, it's these foreigners who actually model what faith in the Lord is meant to look like and who shine this light back on even the great Israelites and say, if you are not living this way, you are not living in the way the Lord wants us to live. And we must always be challenged by these people. 
That's so helpful. A final question for you. I want to read to you some of the final words of your book, where you tell a story about a church in Zimbabwe where you worshipped on your last Sunday. You said, that church had welcomed us, made us part of their life, and in doing so modeled precisely the ethic we've traced through the former prophets. This is in your New Studies in Biblical Theology uh, book, including The Stranger. They included strangers like us, you said, in a world that builds walls between communities or makes the environment hostile for foreigners. This was an example of what the people of God can be, a community that does not discriminate on the basis of ethnicity because we serve a God who does not do so. This is an ethic that is easily talked down in political discourse, you said, but therefore one that is more important than ever for the church, as the people of God, to live out and show a different way of life. Every time I read things like this, and I interviewed Esau Macaulay, for example, author of Reading While Black for um, Bible Study Magazine, which touched on similar themes of um, the barriers between ethnic groups in the church. I, I worked for many years. I, that, these themes make me think of my work that I did in sort of urban mission work in the U.S. And I often felt like I couldn't even really understand, grasp myself, what were the barriers between me and the cultures that I was trying to serve with the gospel, with Bible teaching? What is the primary thing standing in the way of including the stranger? you know, that's taking place in the church. Has your academic work and even your personal history being a stranger as it were, but not the wrong kind as some people have said in a foreign land? Well, I think the interesting thing in Zimbabwe is that we were the wrong kind. Um, you know, I, there we were in uh, Zimbabwe in the 1990s with the whole history of colonialism, the desire really to remove the white people from the country and here we were coming in uh, and yet we were accepted uh, and we were loved by the people within that church but i think one of the things that was really important for that was both for us and for that church to see each other uh, not in terms of uh, stereotypes but to to hear us as real people uh, and part of that for me involved sitting down and advocating for the leadership of that church to the white churches that had previously funded them to say this is a church um, that is really doing important ministry and you need to release it to do that ministry rather than uh, controlling it and for them having me give that voice as the one who's comfortable speaking in English in ways that many of them weren't was was really uh, important uh, and uh, I, I actually went back and visited that church uh, uh, about 18 months later whilst we were in South Africa. And I, I, I wasn't thinking, I should have thought, you know, I drove into a, an entirely black, high density township in a South African registered car, a white person. And I pulled up outside the church and I could suddenly hear people saying things in Ndebele. And my Ndebele was never perfect, but I could kind of get, this doesn't sound good. And then all of a sudden, somebody called out, it's okay, it's David Firth. <laughs> and then people came out um, and they welcomed me back because they saw me not as one more colonialist, one more person who wanted to dominate them, but somebody who wanted to serve them and to live with them and for them. And I think we, they saw us beyond all their stereotypes of the white 
as the person who wanted to take everything from them. We had to see past the stereotypes um, that were often presented to us of how the black community was seen uh, by the white community within Zimbabwe. And we had to see these people, each of them, as God saw them. And when we did that, we realized that they had gifts to give us, to show us things that we weren't necessarily seeing. And we hoped that we were able to do something similar for them as well. And so when I, when I read those passages in uh, Samuel, for example, that we were just talking about, and Itai the Gittite, who's someone from Gath, a Philistine, is able to tell David things where you think David really is the one who ought to know. And I think part of where we had initially been there was that we are missionaries, we're giving to them. But actually, to be a good missionary, we had to let them give to us. And only once we realized that we gave to each other in Christ were we able to overcome those barriers and to see very real growth take place within that uh, church. And we were blessed to see that church grow from about 30 to about 120 to 140 regular people on a Sunday over about a year um, because God was, was at work. And I think God was at work because that's what happened. We saw real people. So we saw a Rahab not as a Canaanite, but as a person of faith who wanted to honour God. We saw Uriah not as a Hittite, but as a person who could tell me, even though I'm the missionary things that needed to be done. Likewise, when we were in South Africa, uh, Ken, my uh, Twana student, being able to say to me, love what you're doing, you need to learn better um, about what's going on and realise that each of us had gift to each other amongst the people of God. And that's what the former prophets are showing us about how the people of God is made up of this, this, this body that is a gift to each other um, rather than one being always right and one other being one always being wrong and we need to see people as people as god sees them and then we are able to discover uh, how much richer this body of christ is that emerges from that amen your academic work clearly serves actual needs within the church you're actually directing the teaching of the bible in application in a way that I found enriching and convicting. I want to live up to the vision of including the stranger. And it it's so easy to say in my nice air-conditioned uh, office, in an interview in public, and so much harder to do. So all we can do ending this interview is pray that the Lord who blessed all families of the earth enough to bring us, presumably both Gentiles, I guess I don't know about you, I certainly am, into into Christ's body wants to use us to show that kind of grace to others, to include the stranger. And I think viewers can see you've got all kinds of, of that technical terminology and of that ability with the languages, but you don't live up in an ivory tower where none of this actually matters. No, nothing hits the ground. The rubber never meets the road. Um, that person on the wrong side of the blanket, I guess I don't, I don't know that uh, terminology. That's not American um, a metaphor, um, can benefit no, it's, from it's this academic It's probably an Australian phrase work. that I need to be careful of. Well, I learned something new. I actually accidentally used a terrible Australian cuss word when I preached there. Thankfully, they were used to Americans enough in that uh, Bible camp that they, they didn't snicker, but 
that's the not the best way to learn, but it is one way. Thank you so much, Dr. Firth, Dr. David Firth. Your new book on Joshua in the Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary series is now available from Lexham Press. And I'm also encouraging readers to pick up your New Studies in Biblical Theology volume, including The Stranger. Thank you again for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dr. Firth and I talked after the interview just a little bit, and he commented that he's always felt called to cross-cultural ministry. That's true even now, although he sure sounds British to those who aren't totally up on all of their accents. He's actually from Australia, and I said Australia, not Australia, because I've been there, that's how they say it. And what I commented to him was that when I read through his work, including The Stranger, and these themes of how the stranger, the foreigner in Joshua, shows truths about the heart of God toward all the families of the earth, he didn't have to impose these themes on the Bible text. They're actually there. He uses his academic skill to bring them out. He's a good writer, he's a very faithful and attentive reader of the narratives of the Old Testament, and he can help you. He can help you understand the book of Joshua, he can help you understand all the number of Old Testament books that show up in his book, including The Stranger, and what can I do, of course, but encourage you to pick up those volumes. Whether in paper, that's okay, or as I have them both in Logos Bible software, I actually bought, with my own money, the New Studies in Biblical Theology series book, although the Luxem Press books are given to me on my Logos account because I work here just to give some truth in advertising. It's been my privilege to have you join us for the Bible Study Magazine podcast. We're coming toward the end of this season. There's just one more interview coming. I encourage everyone out there in viewer and listener land to get Logos Basic or Logos Basic, whichever one you want, logos.com slash basic. You can also get a great starter pack of resources if you'll go to logos.com slash Bible study. I'm Mark Ward, your host and editor of Bible Study Magazine, a product of Faith Life, makers of Logos Bible Software. I'd like to thank my producer, Kaylee Joyce, and my audio technician, Jack Underwood, who got here early this morning to try to fiddle with the microphone that you cannot see. Thank you for joining us on the Bible Study Magazine podcast.